listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. All right, well, we have been looking um, for the last uh, three, several weeks at the interactions of Jesus. And so um, we began this series looking at the interactions of Jesus, uh, and, and we'll, we'll do the third one today. We'll take one break, and Brady Blair is going to be with us next week to, to preach. Um, and then the next week, I'll come back, and we'll finish up this series, okay? Um, but we've been looking at these interactions of Jesus uh, specifically because we wanted to know um, how to, to live out 1 John 2, 5 through 6. And so let me read that real quick. By this, we know that we are in Jesus. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so we've talked about how we, we want to walk like Jesus walked. We want to live like Jesus lived. We want to do what Jesus did. And so the first week we looked at Jesus' interactions with the lowly. And we saw several different instances across the Gospels of how he uh, extended compassion to them, and he calls us to do the same. And then last week, we, we kind of saw a contrast to the lowly, right? We saw how Jesus interacted with the proud, and we saw how Jesus rightly judged the scribes and Pharisees and the proud of his day, and he calls us to not be like them, and then to, when we come across the proud, to engage them in a certain way. And, and this week, we're going to be looking at Jesus' interactions with his disciples, okay? Now, there's so many interactions. Um, even as I was picking a text to come out of, it was kind of difficult because there's just so many of them in the Gospels. Um, and so I had trouble deciding uh, which one would be the best to look at. And I mean, you could go the route of looking at it from the very beginning of his ministry where, where he, he walks up and says, hey, follow me. And they, they get up and they drop everything and they follow him. I think there's so much in that, in that little interaction right there. Or, or you could look at the end, certainly we do, um, where he says, go and make disciples. And, and there's so much packed into those two verses at the end of Matthew where he go, tells them to go and do what he's just done with them for these three years. That how those words have rippled throughout our world, how it's rippled down history to you and to me. I mean, and, then, and then even beyond us as we share the gospel with people. And so there, there's so many good ones and, and everything in between that, right? But the one we're going to look at this morning is what I believe is, is one of the most important in the sense that it, it, again, summarizes his ministry and his interactions with them. So we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. So if you want to flip over to John 13, we'll be in there most of our time, starting in verse 1 when you get there. John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the, the context of this, uh, this whole passage that we're about to be in is, is this. Um, the scene is set up. It's happening on the night before Jesus dies. And he is eating dinner with his disciples. The time has, has finally come for him to go to the cross, the very purpose why he came. And he's giving them these final instructions, reminding them 
of what he's taught them over these last three years. And so we get this beautiful summary statement of the last three years in verse 1, right? His ministry has been one of love. He's loved them, and they are his own, and he is going to love them to the very end. And we'll see that in the, in the chapters to come, right, as we continue on into John. Okay, verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus is, knows his time with his disciples is coming to an end. And he knows he's about to go back to the Father's side. And then he does this outrageous thing, okay? He, he takes off his coat, he grabs a towel, he grabs a bucket, and he begins washing his disciples' feet. Now, when you and I hear this, um, it, it just kind of sounds abnormal or maybe a little strange. Like maybe you've even been to a service where you've seen some of this and, and you know, it's, it's done with, with the hopes of, of doing this, like this beautiful symbol here. Uh, but, but it's just kind of like, this is kind of strange. Uh, but, but in this day, it, it would have been strange. But more than that, it would have been outrageous. It would have been incredibly inappropriate for Jesus, who is their teacher, the leader of this, to do this act. Have you guys, did y'all ever watch Dirty Jobs back in the day? Anybody? Anybody know that? Okay, so if you haven't watched it, that's okay. Um, it's, it's, a, it's basically a show that was this, the host would go around to all these jobs that um, were, were either really, really hard or really, really gross. And sometimes the job was both of those things. And so he would do this and it was just this whole thing. It, it, was, it was nonsense, but it was fun. Um, <laughs> this job here, okay, this job that Jesus is doing it's like the dirtiest job. It's the job that nobody wants to do. Like it was reserved for the lowest of servants in a household, if you even had servants that were this low in a household. Some didn't, and so they just, it wasn't a thing. Now, now imagine this with me, okay? You're a person living in first century Palestine, and your main mode of travel is walking. But you don't walk around in like comfy tennies or anything. You have open-toed sandals, okay? And so, you get stuff on your feet. The other common mode of transportation is animals that share the roads with you, okay? And animals, they eat and they produce. You following me here? Okay? That's, that's what's happening with your feet, okay? So, so you're, you're there, you're a person walking around dry, sandy, and filthy streets in first century Palestine with open-toed shoes, now you get the picture of what's happening here with Jesus, why this was reserved for only the lowliest of servants, right? So when Jesus grabs that towel and he grabs that bucket and he starts washing his disciples' feet, he's doing something that is shocking to them. And you're going to see that in their reaction. Okay, now, before we move on, we need to talk about this, this statement about Judas because it's actually going to come back around. We'll skim it later in the same passage about Judas and why this detail is in there, why it's important. Well, we are told that the devil has already put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And, and this is to highlight for us so that we can keep it in mind as we see what Jesus is about to do. 
Because Jesus is performing this outrageous and humiliating act of love and service for his disciples, but also for his betrayer. We've got to keep that in mind as we continue. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So you've got to love Peter here. If you read Peter in the Gospels, he's just this guy that you're like, I just, I know a guy like this, right? And I, I want to be friends with this guy. Lord, you, you can't wash my feet. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. Okay, well then wash everything, my feet, my hands, wash the whole thing, okay? He, he's missing the point. He's very excited, but he's missing the point. The significance is not in the physical act of washing the feet. The significance is in the act of humble love by Jesus. And, and the significance is in the fact that they have been literally bathed in this humble love for the last three years as they walked with Jesus. And they walked with a very embodiment of love. He says they're already clean. This isn't an issue of making them clean. This is something that Jesus wants as a memory, as an image to fix in their minds as he finishes his time with them. He could just say, and he, and he will here in a bit, hey, go serve and love one another. That would be sufficient. That would get the message across, the, the, the content of the message. But more is said in this act than could ever be said in words. All right, let's continue in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, and he put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, he just straight up asks them, do you understand what I've done here? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. And, and if your Lord and teacher is doing this, then you should be doing this too. As their teacher, he's showing them what they're to do. He's giving them an example to follow. And as their Lord, like the Lord who's led them these last three years, like the Lord who has led them throughout all of their history, the history of Israel throughout the centuries, that Lord is commanding them that they're to do this because they are his servants. And that's what his servants are going to be about. Because if the master is doing this humbling, sacrificial service, then the servant's got to do the same thing. 
And so Jesus' disciples, they're going to be those who go and they are going to lead the church he has begun to establish. We see this throughout the rest of the New Testament, right? They go and they do what we talked about in Matthew 28. They go and they proclaim and they make more disciples. They do what Jesus did with them over and over and over again. But he's showing them something here about how he wants them to do that. Very specific instructions on how they are to lead. This kind of leadership that Jesus is putting forth is totally different than typical leadership models that we find in our world. Uh, if you see in Mark 10, you don't have to turn here if you don't want to, but it's Mark 10, 42. Jesus addresses this as well. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so Jesus is saying, there's a different way we're going to go about this. You've seen this in me the last three years, and as you go from here, you're going to be about this. One commentator put it like this in, in talking about how Jesus' followers are to lead. The test that matters is whether a leader is ready, without a word of either complaint or boasting, to stay behind after the meeting and do the washing up or put out the garbage. Of course, it's important that everybody in a church family helps with the necessary tasks, but the truly Christ-like leader is known by the ease and spontaneity with which he or she does the little annoying, messy things. The things which in the ancient world the slave would do, the things which in our world we always secretly hope someone else will do so we don't have to waste our time to demean ourselves. That is the kind of love and service that Jesus is calling his disciples to. And he reiterates this in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus' disciples will not be those who are marked just by knowing these things. Jesus' disciples will be those who are characterized by actually putting those things into practice. Like putting into practice this high ideal of sacrificial love. And from here, Jesus moves on um, into a further explanation uh, of Judas. And, and so we get this whole interaction. We're going to skim over it for now to get to, to, to the end part here. But basically what happens is Jesus describes how one of his disciples is going to betray him. And so then the disciples, you remember, they're going back and forth. Who is it? Not I, Lord, not I. Okay. Um, and, and then John just straight up asks Jesus, hey, who is it, Lord? And then he sees that it's actually Judas Iscariot that's going to betray Jesus. And then Judas and Jesus have this small exchange, and then Judas goes out to do his worst. And that's where we pick it back up in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is once again pointing to the fact that his time with them is coming to an end. It's time for him to be glorified. It's time for him to leave, and it's the first time in years that he will leave his disciples. They'll be on their own, in a sense. And with that in mind, he gives them this new command. Let's read in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another. That's his new commandment. But, but what's new about that commandment? Like, it, Jesus has already said this in the Gospels. Okay, Matthew 22, verse 37 through 39, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he said it here in the Gospels, and, and that's not new either. Actually, Jesus is quoting, right? He's quoting from Deuteronomy and, and from Leviticus. He gets this from Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So again, you have to ask, what's new about this commandment that Jesus is giving them? And this is a pivotal moment. He's finishing his time. He's wrapping up this time with his disciples. Things are about to change. And he's imparting them with this new commandment that doesn't seem all that new, except that what's new and what's different is a new and different standard. The old standard from Leviticus in the Old Testament is love as you love yourself. And the new standard is love as Jesus loved you. See, the new standard is Jesus. And, and he's telling his disciples, look at how I've loved you, okay? So these three years, um, he is going to ask them to go and love each other in the same way. And then by extension, this love is to go beyond them. It's to go outside this small group. It's to go and extend to the world. How has he loved him? Again, we could look back at those three years and he, he sought those disciples out. Um, he taught them what it looked like to obey God and find true life in the kingdom of God. And he was patient with them as he did this, right? Yeah. So we could look at that. But I think in this moment, what he is referencing for sure is what he's specifically just done for them, right? This is connected to him washing their feet. He's saying this humbling love, this humbling love, that this thing that's been done in this low and humiliating work in order to care and wash his disciples' feet, that's what he was calling them to. But he also points forward. He points forward to how he will love them in an even more special and more significant way as he humbles himself and does the lowest and most humiliating work of dying a shameful death on the cross. Now hold your spot right there in John, and I want you to flip over to Philippians 2 for a moment. In this passage, Paul reminds us, the, uh, the Philippians and us, uh, of this shameful death and, and all the different pieces of it. Let, flip over to Philippians 2, verse 5 for just a second. So this is Paul reflecting back on Christ's death. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even 
death on a cross. And so Paul says to have this mind in us, this mind like Jesus's, who even though he was God in the flesh, did not use that to his advantage. He humbles himself even to the point of this humiliating death. And this is helpful, but, but look at the verses right before that because it spells it out in a way that I think is even more helpful to show what characterized every part of Jesus' ministry leading up to that very moment of his death. Verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is how we live life crucified with Christ, like Galatians 2.20 talks about. This is how we live out that sacrificial love. We count others as more significant than ourselves. Now let's tie this all together, right? The old standard from Leviticus was love your neighbor as yourself. The new standard uh, is that Jesus Uh, he, He raises the bar a bit. The new standard is now love just as Jesus loved us. And how did Jesus love us? He counted himself, counted us rather, as more significant than himself. He valued us above his own life. He looked to our interests above even his own. And that kind of love, that love is what we are now called to. That kind says that I will love you even when it costs me. That kind of love says I will love you even when it hurts. That kind of love says I'll love you even when you're hard to love, right? That kind of love says I will love you even when you don't reciprocate it. And that kind of love, that kind of love, church, that kind of love sticks out. Back to verse 35 in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will the world recognize that we are disciples of Jesus? How will they know that we follow Jesus? And how will that love stand out from, in a way that is different than everything else? It's because this kind of love can only come from a person who has experienced the love of the Savior. This kind of love can only come from a person who's been filled by the Holy Spirit, who is the very embodiment of the love of God. And so at the end of the day, how do we walk like Jesus walked with his disciples? That's the question we're trying to figure out. And it comes down to this, love each other. It sounds so simple. It's not glamorous, it's not flashy, but if you think about Jesus' ministry with his disciples, it wasn't that glamorous and flashy either. There was time, certainly, but in the everyday, he spent time with them. He showed them, he embodied this love and showed them what it looked like, and then he just spent time with them. Three years, 24-7, and they still didn't get it. Okay, so there's hope for us, right? But that's what our work is to be about, loving each other. And this isn't some wimpy, weak love. Don't hear this as that. This is a fierce love. 
This is a love with some grit to it. Um, a few weeks back, Adam Sandlin was here preaching, um, and he quoted uh, a, a quote from Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. Um, and, and so it, it kind of stirred my interest, and so I, I've been listening to it on audiobook. And it's, it's a phenomenal book. I, I don't know why it's taken me so long to read such a classic. But, but what intrigued me um, about this was, was the fact that Here's, here's this family. Let me give you a little context. The, the Ten Boom family, they're living in Holland, in this town in Holland, and they are a watchmaking family, okay? They're just, they're watchmakers. They fix clocks and all this thing. They sell clocks. That's what they do. But in, they're also, this is happening in the time of World War II, right? When Jewish people are being taken, right? They're being taken away. They're being taken to concentration camps. They're being taken to these, these horrifying things. And so the war comes to Holland, and their family, their response is one of love, of sacrificial love. They could have kept to themselves. They weren't Jewish, but they risked in order to create a safe house and, and for, for Jewish exiles who were on the run, and then it became even more. They actually became kind of the ringleader for the underground network in this town and, and even to, to different parts of Holland. And so I, I was, as I've been listening to this, I've just been intrigued by it. It's been so amazing to see how this family pulls together to love these Jewish people. Um, and, and as they're continuing, again, they, they start this whole underground network as they're continuing to kind of expand that network, because more and more Jewish people, they're coming to their house looking for help, and they, they can only house so many, and so they're finding other places for them to be, and, and other uh, families willing to take them in. And so they're doing this, they're extending their, their network, and one day um, a, a Jewish mother and her infant baby come in, and they're on the run, and so they don't have a place for it, and so she is prayerful. We need a, a place to place this mother and child. The same day, a local pastor in Holland, in their town, walks in to get his clock fixed, right? How providential. And so she just feels it, yes. So she goes, she takes, you know, it's risky to be able to ask someone who you don't know which side that they, they fall on. But a pastor, a local pastor, one that I know, yeah, come on in. And so she presents him with this. Hey, we have this Jewish mother. We have this, this infant child. Will you take them in? And he says, no. He says, I, I can't believe you're, you're mixed up with all this stuff. It's, it's too risky. How could you do that to your family? And she's a little bit, you know, caught off guard. And so she goes, oh, he just doesn't understand. And so she runs upstairs and grabs the infant from the mother, brings the infant downstairs and shows him. She's like, this, this is what's at stake. Like, this child's life is at stake. And he looks at the child and he thinks for a moment and then he says no again and he turns and walks out of the shop. That image affected me and has haunted me a bit. Because here you have these two pictures here, right, of, of love. People who are Christians, who know about the love that's been extended to them. You have uh, Corey and her family, and then you have this pastor. And this pastor, he knows the love of God, right? He's a pastor. He knows what's been extended to him. He's been a herald of this. And yet, this pastor loved in word only. 
This pastor loved with a love that risked little. This pastor loved with a love that cost him nothing. And on the other side, you see this image of the Ten Boom family. They loved in a way that encompassed their whole life. They were watchmakers. You don't look at a watchmaker and go, that would be a great place to set up an underground network, right? No, but they were affected by the love of God. They saw this need and they acted in a way that risked greatly. They loved with a love that cost them dearly. And so the question that I've been asking myself as I think about those two images, and the question I ask you is which love are we going to be about? Can you imagine what it would look like if we loved each other with that kind of love within our church family? Like we actually were looking to count others as more important than ourselves. And, and then what if we took that same love that was here in our little church family and, and it moved beyond that to other believers in other churches? What if we actually looked to others' interests more than our own? And, and what would it look like for us to love one another with such intensity that the world actually took notice? I'm not saying they're convinced yet, but they're going, whoa, that's kind of weird. What's happening there? Yeah. And, and what if that is what we were known for as Christians? Because we're known for a lot of things, some of them undeserved, some of them maybe deserved. But unfortunately, this is not what we're known for. So the question for us today is what are we going to lay down in order to have a love like this? Like, what are we going to lay down so we can love our friends like this? What are we going to lay down so we can love our spouse or our kids like this? It's not just this thing that goes outside. It's, it's in your home too, right? What are we going to have to lay down so we can love our church like this? What are we going to have to lay down so that we can love the lost world like this? Because church, that's the love that the world needs. That's the love that changes everything. And that's the love that has changed us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you we thank you that you have loved us with that kind of love. That, that you love in word and in deed. We thank you that the radical and amazing and sacrificial love of Jesus has been extended to us as, as the disciples throughout the ages have carried down the message of the gospel that one day reached me and that the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see how good and how amazing you are. I thank you for all my brothers and sisters in here that that is their story as well. God, we, we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet we are so grateful for it. I pray that you would help us, God, 
that, that as we see these pictures, these images, these glimpses of love from Jesus, and as we think about saints through the ages like the Ten Boom family who have embodied this, may that capture our imaginations. May that capture our attention as we look to put this in place in our own life. Holy Spirit, move, convict us, show us where we need to take that step of obedience today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.